0: Good morning. It's a joy to be able to open God's Word with you this morning. Um, Molly and I and the kiddos have just such a joy being here at Christ Bible Church. This is our home church. We're just so thankful to be here. And um, Would you please stand again with me? I'm sorry to have you stand again, but in reading God's Word, please turn to Psalm 8. Please Psalm t- read Psalm 8 with me. Psalm 8, for the choir director on the gittith, a psalm of David, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who displayed your splendor above the heavens from the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and crowned him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes through the pass of the seas. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Dear Lord, we come before you, we come before your word. And we are so grateful that we have you and we have your word and we're just amazed that you reveal yourself to us pray that you would please speak your word clearly through through um, even me today just pray that you would help us to understand your word thank you for your kindness to us pray that you'd illumine your word through your spirit in Jesus name amen you can be seated This psalm has been called the doxology of Genesis 1, through 28. It also carries great significance in the New Testament. It's applied directly to Jesus the Messiah. It reflects on man's dependence connected to his creator. It's also a psalm of wonder and humility of man before Yahweh, his master, when you think of the Psalms, what do you mainly think of? How would you describe the book of Psalms to a, to a non-Christian friend? Maybe somebody that's never picked up a Bible before. Most likely, you would explain the book of Psalms as, as a book of praise or a book of worship. And you won't be wrong. But do you know that if your friend was to pick up a Bible, and turn to the beginning of the book of Psalms, they would not encounter a praise psalm until right here. This is the first song of praise or a hymn. In Psalm 1, we looked at a few weeks ago, was a psalm of wisdom. Psalm 2 was a messianic, a royal psalm. Psalms 3 through 7 can be classified as laments. They're sad songs. And up to this point, you'd probably be in a lot of sadness. There's some bright lights in there, but, but overall the tone is, is lament or sadness. They're cries to God for deliverance. They're much like we looked at last week in Psalm 42, or the, the week prior to that, um, two weeks prior to that in Psalm 77. Those are both crying out to God for help. In contrast to these psalms, Psalm 8, it's a song of praise. Specifically, it can be called a creation psalm. It's along with Psalm 19 or Psalm 104. And at its core, Psalm 8 is a hymn of praise to God. It's written by King David, and it was used as part of Israel's hymn book and part of their corporate worship. Throughout the ages, this has been a very important psalm. Unfortunately, many have read this psalm, and it's, it's praise of, of exaltation of God, and then they focus entirely on man and man's dignity, and they stop there. Let me ask you, when we read this psalm, did you catch the emphasis of it? Let me read it again. I'm going to leave some parts out, but let's see if, if we can look at the focus together and the emphasis of David. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Your splendor you have established. Your adversaries, your fingers, your, your heavens. The moon and the stars which you have ordained, you take thought of him, you care for him, you have made him, you crown him, you make him, your hands, you have put, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You see who's doing all the action in this psalm? Is it man? No, not at all. Over 19 times, David exalts the Lord and his majestic name. What must our lives exalt? What must our words and our deeds exalt? Are we to exalt ourselves? No, no way. We're to never have pride in our humanness. Even when we look at this psalm, we're not to, to praise God and look back on us. Instead, we're to lay down our pride and instead we're to exalt God's glorious name. Today in Psalm 8, our goal is to dwell on three disciplines. You'll see in your notes there, we have it kind of spelled out, but three disciplines that will help us to reflect God's glory back to Him. First, we want to remember the Lord's splendor and strength in verses 1 and 2. And second, we want to revel in the Lord's creation and care in verses 3 and 4. And third... We want to rest in the Lord's redemption and reign. First, remembering the Lord's splendor and strength. Let's look at verse 1 again. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We are to remember the Lord's splendor and strength. It is significant to see how David's remembering... Is turned to praise of God for who He is and what He's done. In this psalm, He praises God for His relationship, and, and we'll see it going through, but he, His relationship to the earth, then to heaven, then to the earth, looking at humans, then again to he- the heavens, then to earth, again looking through humans, and then that God's name is magnified in all the earth. So there's this. This kind of ping-pong up and down. And you may ask, why, why is this done? Well, part of the answer comes in verses 1 and 9. Did you notice they're repeated? The same exact phrase is repeated in those lines. It's, it's as one author stated, David weaved together. He kind of weaved it like a wreath so that we, we will remember the parameters of this psalm. That... It's God's majesty that's being magnified in all the earth. So we need to keep that in mind throughout this whole psalm. That's that's for emphasis. When an author does that, it's called inclusio. It's for emphasis. He doesn't want us to forget. There's no verb in that first line or the last line. It's a declaration of reality. Have you ever sung this? This? Have you ever sung it? It goes. I, I'm. I'm not gonna. I'm not a singer, but. Uh, it goes, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Have you heard that? Did you know by hearing that that there are two different words for Lord? No. We don't have it in English. We, do, we don't catch it at all. You might notice in your Bible that w- the first Lord looks different than that second Lord in lines 1 and 9, for, verses 1 and 9. Why they're different is because the first Lord is God's covenant name, Yahweh. The second Lord is Adonai, which is, it means master. Literally, this should read, Yahweh our master. This is the same construction found in Psalm 110.1, where we read, The Lord Yahweh said to my Lord, Master, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemy is a footstool for your feet. God's name is the embodiment of all of his attributes. So if you look there in this verse, in verse 1, how majestic is your name in all the earth? Well, it's, it's really focusing on all of his attributes. It's consistent. His name is consistent with his character. That's why the Proverbs say, a good name is to be more desired than great wealth. In Proverbs 22 1. A name is really who you are. God's two names here tell us that God is a covenant keeper who fulfills his promises and also that he's the true and only master of all. The second part of verse 1 continues worshiping God by declaring, Who have displayed your splendor above the heavens? This is the the first of six poetic couplets. So, in the Hebrew language, this is this is a way that they did rhyme and, and the way they, they did poetry. So, putting putting two lines saying essentially the same thing, but a complementary thing in the second second line. So, the this is the first one. Now, you're going to notice looking at verse nine, we don't have a poetic couplet in verse nine. He just he ends there. So, this portion is a couplet of the portion just before in the first part of verse 1 so verse 1 states that the majesty of God's name fills the earth and line 2 says the Lord has literally put or set or displayed his splendor not in the heavens did you catch that? it's not in the heavens it's above the heavens his splendor is even above the heavens God's not bound by His creation, is He? He's even above the heavens, and His splendor goes out above the heavens. So we are enveloped and surrounded with God's majesty and splendor. From the earth to the heavens, through God's creation, everyone on this planet is constantly confronted with the fact that God is in control, and they are not. This leads us to the second verse. Verse 2. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and revengeful cease. Now, this is David's first transition from God's relationship to the earth, to heaven now, now back to the earth, looking at two types of humans, looking at two very different types of humans little babies and proud enemies of God It's very interesting that God has used the mouths of little babies literally suckling or nursing ones to establish a bulwark of strength to stop his adversaries Doesn't it sound kind of odd to you in first pass it's not just to stop their speaking, but it's to stop them completely. It's to, to make them, put them to rest or make them cease, to just stop them. In 1 Corinthians one twenty nine, we read, God has chosen the foolish and weak things of this world so that no man may boast before God. The ultimate picture of this was when God sent his own son, Jesus, to be born as a human little baby to save mankind from his sin. Jesus also quoted this verse. He, he himself quoted this verse in, in Matthew twenty-one sixteen. He quoted it when the... Do you remember in the triumphal entry when, when uh, he came and they were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. And then he cleansed out the temple the second time. And then he was... They were bringing all the blind and the lame to to him, and he was healing them and healing them. And the Pharisees and the tribes of the Pharisees came up, and they were really upset about one thing. It was little kids that were saying, Hosanna to the son of David. And Jesus used this verse right here to silence them. In that context, praise to Jesus was the same as praise to God. This praise of of children silenced Jesus' enemies, the false religious teachers. A nursing baby is completely dependent for life, isn't it? Those who are God's enemies think and act as though they are independent. But every one of God's human enemies was once a humble little baby themselves. Isn't that ironic? In reality, everyone and everything is completely dependent upon God. When was the last time you made your heartbeat? When was the last time you you decided you, hey, I'm not going to breathe for a while. I'm just going to stop. No, no, we're constantly dependent, constantly, constantly. God is making us alive. When was the last time you said, "I'm going to make something alive today"? Can we do that? Can anyone do that? No, we're so dependent upon God. But but there are many who are proud enemies against God. In reality, everyone and everything is completely dependent upon God. The problem, though, is in the heart, isn't it? It's in the heart that they have said, there is no God, as we looked at this morning in Family Bible, Hour, there are those that say, there is no God. And then that's stated in Psalm Psalm 10.4, Psalm fourteen one, Psalm fifty three one. So that's significant that they say that much in the Psalms. There are many that say that there is no God. In this Psalm, this is the only reference to sin. It's very interesting that it's right at the beginning of the Psalm. In the five Psalms before this Psalm, Psalms 3 through 7, the many adversaries and enemies that are mentioned are the adversaries of David. Okay, so if you look back at those psalms, Psalm three, one, three, seven, four, two, five, eight, six, seven, seven, four, they're all David's enemies. They're David's enemies, but here, here it, they're God's enemies. Do you know that God has hundreds and thousands, even millions, even billions of enemies right now? There are about 7 billion people on in the world right now. 7 billion. And the majority are God's enemies. In reality, all of us are born into this world in a wrong relationship with God. We are born as enemies of God who choose to live as God's enemies. This brings us to an important question. Are you still an enemy of God? Today, if you were to die and stand before God, you would have to be perfect and free from all of your sins to not be called his enemy. He must be your master, your Lord, or you're still his enemy. It is only through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. That you can be saved from your sins. Today is the day of salvation in which you can stop being God's enemy and be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus. If you want to know how you can have a personal relationship, a personal salvation relationship with Jesus Christ, please come and talk to one of us afterwards. We We would love to share the good news of Jesus with you. This leads to our next discipline our next discipline in our outline is, is to revel in the Lord's creation and care. David takes a turn from the corporate R, which is used in verses 1 and 9. And now he makes a transition. And looking to the heavens and on wonder, he now speaks in the first person, I. When he considers God's creation and the focus of this psalm is further directed to the Lord and further focused on the Lord. So we're to revel in the Lord's creation and care. Let's read verses 3 and 4. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? David now revels and he wonders in the Lord's creation and care. We're reminded that you and I are always before an audience of one. Did you know at any moment you can pray to God at any moment that's what David does here he's just looking up at the sky and he just starts praying to God The word translated consider here is it's literally the word for see it has the idea of thinking deeply or pondering Have you ever looked at the night sky when you can clearly see the stars maybe you're out of the valley you know you can clearly see the stars you can see the moon And you felt very small. Have you ever looked and you see the stars beyond the stars? And you just feel very small? What about looking at the NASA images? Have you guys seen the images of like deep space and the planets and stars, even other solar systems? And you felt very small? In Genesis 1 verse 16, Moses tells us this. He says, listen to this. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, the sun, and the lesser light to govern the night, the moon. He made the stars also literally it's and the stars. Can you believe that He, he made the, the the sun and he created the moon and the and the stars that's that's what it says just and the stars. The magnificent celestial bodies were simply the work of his fingers. Just the works of his fingers, it says in our psalm. Almost giving the picture of God creating the heavens with a snap of his fingers. Can you imagine? That's it. And all the wondrous heavens that we're still trying to discover and still trying to understand, they were all created. And they themselves are just a dim reflection of his own awesome splendor. God has ordained and fixed each star, each star in place for his glory. The moon was created by God to show forth his glory. It was not. He didn't create it so man could go up there and put a flag on and, hey, I'm so cool. No, that's not why. It was made for his glory. It was made for his glory. It's God's moon. They're God's stars. The earth belongs to man, uh, to God. Not to man, but even man, every human being, belongs to God. So do you, so do I. We all belong to God. And we're totally dependent upon Him. This leads David to ask the million-dollar question of humility. What is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? In light of the wonder of the heavens, David exclaims how puny and seemingly insignificant we are as humans. What is mankind? What what is a human? This same question is asked of God two other times in the Old Testament. First, it's found on the opposite end of the Psalter in Psalm forty four three, where David again asks this question, but but this time his focus is on man's mortality. Let me read that in verse three, Psalm one forty four three. O Lord, what is man that you take knowledge of him, or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a mere breath. His days are like a passing shadow. The second location is Job 7.17, where the question is asked by Job in the midst of his agony and his suffering. And again, we're focusing, he focuses on human mortality. Let me read that, starting in verse 16, Job 7.16. I waste away, I will not live forever. Leave me alone, for my days are but a breath. What is man that you magnify him, and that you are concerned about him, that you examine him every morning and try him every moment. Back to our text, in verse 4, David uses two different words for man. We don't see this in our English Bibles. Do, Do you see that again? Those are two totally different words. Yeah, we don't see that. The first word is enosh. It's of, it's of earthly focus. The second word is, it's in the phrase, the son of, it's literally Adam. The son of Adam. That's the word for, for man there. It's a Hebrew word that's used for man, but it was originally applied to the first man, Adam. It denotes mankind's creatureliness, possibly even him being plagued with sin being a descendant of the first Adam. Also, it's of note that the Son of Man, that was was a key title that Jesus often used in reference to himself. As Jesus himself identified with mankind, the mankind he came to save. In consideration of mankind's frailty, what an amazing statement this is. Because David focuses on how the Lord of the universe thinks about, remembers, pays attention to, tenderly cares for mankind. He fleshes this out in the final section of our psalm. What are the three disciplines that reflect God's glory back to him? First, we must remember the Lord's splendor and strength. We can remember every day, right? We look outside and we see the sun and we look at the moons we see the skies. Second, we must revel In the Lord's creation and care. And this brings us to our third point, which is to rest in the Lord's redemption and reign, verses 5 through 9. You may be asking, why the Lord's redemption and reign? Because our text says, man. Well, this continues, and it will become clear who redeems who and who reigns who and why we're to rest in the Lord. It'll become clear as we go through this last section. Since Psalm 8 is largely grounded in Genesis, can you please turn with me to Genesis chapter 1? Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Let me go ahead and read first us Genesis 1:26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. And rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over everything that moves on the earth. We need to remember that according to the creation account, man and woman were created in the image of God. And they were placed in a category which is totally separate and distinct from the animal kingdom. Totally separate. In God's scheme of things, they they aren't in the same category. They're not even the same category. In fact, mankind was commanded by God to subdue and rule over the entire animal kingdom. Man was not made a little higher than an ape or a monkey. He was not. Rather, we have been made a little lower than the angels. In God's very own image and likeness. This should definitely inform us of, of the value of human life, shouldn't it? This is the verse that is quoted after the flood in Genesis 9-6. It's quoted by God to Noah. And God states that the life of another human being is not to be taken by another human or even by an animal. Now, this turn back to Psalm 8, back to our text in Psalm 8, 5 through 9. Well, there's no exact statement in, in Psalm 8 of God's image or likeness in man. The statement, the statement that occurs here in Psalm 8 is definitely a commentary on the reality of God's image in man. Listen to this. We read in verse 5. Yet you have made him a little lower ...than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. In verse 5 in Hebrew, it is the idea of... ...yet you have caused him to be decreasing or lacking a little lower than Elohim. That's a name for God. A little lower than Elohim. You may notice in in your Bible, your Bible may say, have a different translation. It, It may read as divine or may read as angels... But we know from the immediate context and ultimately from the New Testament in hebrews two seven that this should be read probably most most best read as angels instead of God, which is consistent that's consistent with the Greek Septuagint translation of the Hebrew Bible, just so you know um, verse five continues on so this this look at verse five. That second part. You crowned or surrounded him with glory, with splendor, with honor, with majesty. This line, it beautifully connects the line immediately before with the line immediately after. Glory and honor are attributes of royalty. They're here applied to mankind as God's vice regents, as his kingly representatives, as the stewards of his creation. Now, stewards over what? Let's read verses 6 through 9. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So in verse 6, what are the works of your hands? What are the works of your hands? And what are the all things? Looking at verses 7 and 8, it's clear that David had in mind the entire animal kingdom. Because he states, what does he state there? He states, of the field, of the heavens, of the sea, all things, right? He states, all things. So, it's, it's where do you find animals? You find them in the field. You found, find them in the sky. You find them in the seas. So, it's in all of those places. So, David is it really is looking back at, in Genesis and saying, Boy, you, you've really given man uh, a lot of responsibility. One author has noted, listen to this. One author has noted, every time we partake, that's another way of saying eating, every time we partake, every time we partake of fish or fowl, that, that's a bird, every time we partake of fish or fowl, we realize this dominion which man has over the works of god 's hands, this is a reason for our subjection to God as our chief Lord and His dominion over us. So every time you eat chicken or you're eating you know hamburger, you need to remember that you're in subjection to God. It's a reminder. In light of these aspects from Psalm 8, of mankind being made a little lower than the angels and being crowned with glory and with honor and being caused to rule over every creature on the planet as God's vice-regent. It looks like a pretty nice picture, right? But why is there so much evil in the world? Back to Genesis 3, do you realize that the lie that Satan used to deceive Eve and to plunge mankind into the horrific tragedy of sin. It was a lie of lunacy. Listen to this. I'm going to read from Genesis 3. Listen to what Satan said as he directly contradicted God's clear command. Genesis 3, verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. That's a direct contradiction to what God said. God said, You will surely die if you eat of that tree. And the serpent totally went against God's word. Exactly went against it. You will surely not die, for God knows in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Did you hear that? You will be like God. Eve was already made in the in the exact image and likeness of God. Right? Does that make any sense? She was already more like God. Than any other creature on the planet. We must always remember. Especially when we are tempted to sin. That God himself always gives the very best. And this is found in a dependent relationship with him. Not in a pseudo independence apart from him. As a result of Adam and Eve's sin. Death, decay, sickness and pain. They all entered the world. Mankind was and is in desperate need of a Savior. Now, considering Genesis 3 and looking at Psalm 8 now, in light of the fall, because of sin, we see a great distortion to how humans treat other humans, to how they they try to suppress the truth that he himself has made in God's image. Mankind now selfishly rules over the animal kingdom. Or on the opposite end, he worships the animal kingdom. Man now works constantly and selfishly having God's name, against having God's name magnified throughout the earth. Trying to stop it. Trying to stop it. Suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Man is constantly trying to make himself the sinner and God of his own universe. Man is in desperate need of a Savior. He's in desperate need of God's Son, Jesus Christ, to rescue and redeem him from his sin. So men and women the entire world, we desperately need Jesus. We need Jesus to be the perfect restored image of God and to rule and reign as God intended. Follow along with me. Because we're going to now turn to the other end of the Bible. We're just in Genesis. Now we're going to turn to the New Testament. This psalm is quoted quite a bit for being such a small psalm. It's quoted quite a bit in the New Testament. Go ahead and turn to Ephesians 1. As I read, think of how we're to rest in God's redemption and reign Patrick, uh, this morning, he, he talked a little bit about how God's word has power in it by itself. And so we're going to actually look at these verses and just kind of read them. So please follow along with me and, and think of how we're to rest in the Lord's redemption and reign. First, in Ephesians 1, 19 through 23, Jesus is exalted on high as a result of his resurrection. So, so Ephesians 1.19. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. Which he brought about in Christ. When he raised him from the dead and seated him as his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet. Did you catch it? That's from Psalm 8, right there. All things in subjection under his feet. And gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Next, please turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Verse 5. And here we're going to see all things being subject, and all things will be subject to Jesus. Hebrews two verse five. For he did not subject the angels to the world, come, the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere. Psalm eight, just so you know, he, you know, the writer of Hebrews said somewhere. Well, he's he's quote Psalm eight right here. What is man that you remember him, or the son of man, that you're concerned about him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and and honor, and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him, but we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory, to to perfect the author of salvation through sufferings next please turn to 1st Corinthians 15 did you know this psalm was quoted this many times so this is significant for us to look look and, and see what the new testament writers say 1st Corinthians 15 verse 20 so verse 20 this is jesus will have universal dominion when he returns verse 20 but now christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who are asleep for since by a man came death by a man also came the resurrection of the dead for as in adam all die so in christ all will be made alive but each in his own order christ the first fruits after that those who are christ at his coming Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God and Father, to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. That's from Psalm 8. The last enemy that will be abolished is death, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says... All things are put in subjection, it is evident that He is accepted who put all things in subjection to Him. When all things are subjected to Him, the Son Himself will also be subjected to the One who subjected all things to Him, so that God may be all in all. Finally, finally, in Christ Jesus, mankind will rule and reign as God intended. Finally, and he's it will happen. This rule and reigning will, will continue forever and ever and ever with eternity into eternity with God. In Revelation twenty two, five, and I'll, I'll just read this for you, Revelation twenty two five. The bond servants of God will serve him, and listen to this they will reign forever and ever. Compare that with Psalm eight verse six. You make him to rule, right? Well, those who are God's bond slaves are going to reign with him forever and ever. Listen to this quote. Man, through God's favor, originally made a little lower than angels, has a universal dominion, ultimately awaiting him in Christ, even far above the angels. So this brings us to our conclusion where is Jesus, the perfect God-man right now? Where is he? We still see sin and evil in the world, right? Where, where is he right now? The words of uh, scholar F.F. F. Bruce are, are helpful here. Right, let me read this last quote. Um, well, actually, two quotes. This is a helpful quote. For there at God's right hand he sits enthroned, And crowned with glory and honor. Jesus who became man. Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels. Jesus who endured death. This Jesus has been raised to the place of highest exaltation. And reigns there until all opposition to his sovereignty comes to an end. Then indeed in the fullest degree will be seen all things subjected to him. Jesus himself declares the manner of his imminent return. In Revelation twenty two twenty we read, He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. That's Jesus speaking. Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. That's John's response. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The question for you right now is this Do you belong to Jesus? Have you been born again? If not, today is the day of salvation. You can be born again and you can be ready for Jesus' return. He's coming. He might come today. You can repent and believe today. For those of you who are born again, can you confidently say with Apostle John, Amen? Come, Lord Jesus. Are you walking consistently with your calling? Are you bearing the fruits of the Spirit right now in your life? These things matter immensely. They matter immensely. And they're now possible for us to do in God's strength, for God's glory. We, we conclude with one last quote. This is a fantastic summary of Psalm 8 and, and of his application. Those who have been forgiven of their sins can join God in the awesome display of his character by acknowledging him, by proclaiming his great deeds, and by making disciples. So when we do those things, we're actually proclaiming God's glory throughout the earth, too. So what are the three disciplines to reflect God's glory back to him? To remember the Lord's splendor and strength, revel in the Lord's creation and care, and three, to rest in the Lord's redemption and reign. That brings us to the very last verse of the psalm, right? O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Dear Lord, we are so thankful that, that you have given us your word. It just brings so much clarity to our lives. We just see sin around us. We see death around us. We see, we see you not glorified as you should be glorified. And we long for the day when you'll return. We pray that you'll return soon. We pray with the Apostle John that, that you'll come quickly, Lord Jesus. Please come quickly. Please find us faithful. Find us ready. We pray that your glory will be shown throughout the earth, but also through us to a watching world, but also reflected back to you. You're the only one who can handle your glory. And we, in humbleness, want to reflect that glory back to you. Thank you for being our God and our King and our Savior and our Sovereign Lord. We pray that you would help us to live in light of this reality. This week, in Jesus' name, amen.